0: minor. He's writing to them about a lot of things. He's he's writing to them in the midst of some suffering and some hardship that they're experiencing, but he's wanting them to do more than just survive that. He's actually wanting them to thrive in that. He wants them, among other things, to mature in their faith, to grow uh, we, we see that in chapter One already. It's about the believer's maturity. He, he starts with this beautiful description of of what riches, of what treasure these believers have in Christ. Now that they've begun to follow him, he, he speaks of God's mercy, He speaks about the living hope that they have, the inheritance they have to look forward to, the joy that is theirs. And when he has described these riches a bit, he then shifts and begins to talk about the responsibilities that come with those riches. He, he's got some exhortations, some, some commands for these believers in light of all that they have received from Christ. He says, here's what life will look like now. And so in this most immediate section we've been looking at, there are four commands. We've we've looked at two already. First, we saw that they're commanded to live a life of hope. Hope fully in the gospel. Go all in on grace. That should be your source of hope. And then the second command we saw was they're also to live a life of holiness. There to be holy because the one who called them is holy. We get the third command this week. The fourth will come next week, and it's actually in chapter 2. Those chapter divisions weren't inspired. They came later. But we got the third one this week, this third command and exhortation. We find that Peter gives us a mark of Christian maturity. But along with that, he also gives us a motivation for it and a means by which we will progress in attaining it. I want you to stand if you're able. It's just four verses this morning. 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. These are the very words of God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. preaching of this good news, this inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative good news. Let's pray. Oh, Father, come and help. Without your help, we'll miss it. We'll think that we get it, and we'll still miss it, because it's beyond our grasp. Not because it's so hard to understand, but because our minds are, are dim and they are dull because of the fall. We'll miss it because our hearts are hardwired to think that we can do it ourselves. And that we don't need as much grace as we actually do. And so we'll miss it unless you come and help. So come and help, please. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So it's just four verses, but man, there's a lot here. Uh, Peter's talking about all kinds of things. He's talking about being born again. He's talking about God's word. And everything he mentions is really tightly... Connected. There's lots of connecting words. I saw some fours and a sense, all those connecting words that we really need to pay attention to when we see them. And so I think the best way for us to make sense of all that's packed in here is to see how it all relates to this third command that we have, this third exhortation that Peter gives, this mark of Christian maturity that Peter focuses on. It's the main verb in this section the one to which everything else relates it is the imperative verb love specifically love one another verse 22 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love love one another so there's your mark for Christian maturity Your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Peter is pointing to. Is that what you naturally think of when you're thinking about what a mature Christian looks like? Is that how you naturally measure your own maturity is in how well you are loving your brothers and sisters? Or do you use some other measuring stick? Are you thinking in terms of right theology or deep faith or praying with eloquence? Oh, that must be a mature Christian. Listen to how they pray. Or how often they serve. And they're the one who is always signing up to help around the church. They must be a mature Christian how much they give, any variety of things, things which are all important, things which all have value. right? We we need good theology. It's it's important that we have a right understanding of who God is and, and who we are. Service is important. All of these things have value, but is there one characteristic of a mature disciple that rises above the rest? Is there one thing that we ought to have that regardless of how, however much else we have, without it, we'd be missing something huge? Is there one thing that kind of makes or breaks things? Peter seems to be hinting at this one, singling out love for one another. And I wonder if he does this because, because it's still ringing in his ears that night in the upper room with Jesus. When Jesus said, a new command I give you. New command? What? What are we supposed to do, Jesus? To love one another just as I've loved you. Do you think maybe Peter remembered how Jesus said that love for one another would be the mark it would be the indicator by which other people knew that they belonged to Jesus, that other people knew that they were disciples of the Lord Jesus, is how they loved each other. So now, how would you answer my initial awkward question about being a mature Christian? Knowing that the mark that we're looking for is love. Some of you might feel crushed by that. You might think, oh man, (laughs) of all the things that had to be love. Others might think, oh, that's not so bad. I'm a loving person. I want people to get along. I want people to feel good about themselves. I tell people that I love them all the time. Piece of cake. Well, It's important that we have the full picture of what this mark is all about. Of what this call to love actually entails. Um, Peter specifically, think about who he's writing to. He's writing to a bunch of people who would have had a really difficult time loving one another. They're in the first century church, which is this strange, difficult mixture of pagan Gentiles who've come to faith and very religious Jews who have started now believing in Jesus as Messiah and following him. What friction existed in the early church? Very different backgrounds and cultures and ways of thinking and living. And there was so much jealousy and animosity and misunderstanding. It's probably a lot easier for us to love each other than it was for them. We're a pretty homogeneous group if you look around. We've got a lot more in common than they did. It's a difficult call to love one another. Uh, plus, look at, look at the way that Peter describes this love. It, this is not just sentimentality. This is not just, you know, Hallmark greeting card kind of, oh, yes, love. This love is to be, number one, sincere. But even sincerity isn't enough. It has to come from a pure heart, he says. That means it has to be properly motivated, So if your love for others is in any way tainted with self-interest, any kind of a you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, any thoughts back there of I'm going to love you, but now I'm secretly holding you in my debt, waiting for you to repay that one day, then surely that doesn't count. Peter also says we're to love earnestly. If you've got the NIV, it says deeply. If you've got the NIS, it says fervently. What's that mean to love like that? What would that look like? Well, the same word is used to describe Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that gives you any idea. Luke captures it. I think that's in chapter 22. He says, being in agony, he was praying earnestly and his sweat became like drops of blood. Friends, do we love one another to the point that we're in agony? Does our love for one another stretch us and strain us? Because that's the picture here. That's the mark of being a mature believer is loving like that. What a high mark that is. What an impossible mark that is. You don't love like that. You know how I know you don't love like that? Because I don't love like that. But see, it's when we get to the place that we can admit that that the Father has us right where he wants us. See, we've got to be humbled by and stymied by the impossibility of this command before we'll cry, uncle. Or in this case, more appropriately, we'll cry, father. I can't do this. It's too hard. Would you help me? couple of weeks ago, you remember how burdensome that command to be holy felt? How antithetical to grace it, it felt at first. This command to love, this command to love like Jesus loved, to love earnestly to the point of, Jesus would further elaborate what it looks like. This is what real love is. That a man lay down his life for his friends. Loving like that is hard. Being commanded to do it feels so hard, but it ends up being just as gracious as the rest of the things that we've seen. Especially as we look at these other two M's on your outline. We've seen the mark of maturity and all of its great difficulty. Now let's look at the motivation and the means. And by motivation, I mean the thing that's going to propel us forward. The energy behind our learning to love one another. The fuel for the fire, if you will. Now, a frequent part of Peter's argument and logic, it's not really unique to Peter. Paul does the same thing, too. But he takes the glorious truths that have been declared about us in the gospel, and he then urges us to live as if they're true. Here's all the things that have been given to you and declared about you. Now go live like you believe it's real. That's what they do, right? You've been adopted into a new family so you ought to live like a daughter or son and not an orphan. Right? You've been set free from the slavery of your sin, so you ought to live like that's true and not submit yourself again to yoke of slavery. Right? In God's grace He has set you apart. He's, He's called you out. He's set you apart as belonging to Him. Therefore, we ought to live distinct, set-apart lives that actually look different from the people that we've been set apart from. Now, that's his logic. That's his way of thinking. So, two ways that Peter does that in our verses today is he points to our purification and he points to our new birth. Look in verse 22. Your soul has been purified. Well, that tells us quite a bit in just a few words, doesn't it? Look at all that's there. Number one, we have a soul. There's more than just what you see on the surface. We are not just flesh and blood. There's something eternal and lasting about us. We have a soul. The second thing we see, we've got an impure soul. We're dirty and defiled. Something's not right with us, or else we wouldn't need to be purified. We've got a problem. But then we've also, we see there must be a solution somewhere, because something has happened so that our soul is no longer impure. It's no longer dirty and defiled. It's been purified. You are a purified person. Therefore, you ought to live like a purified person. Right? Don't go back to the old things that made you dirty and defiled and impure. Don't go back to living like the old person because, in fact, you are not that old person anymore because of Peter's second motivation here. You've been born again. Now, this is the second time Peter mentions this in one chapter. It must be important. Back in verse 3, we saw, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. We once were dead, but now we're alive. And this purification and this new birth go hand in hand. We have to be born again. Because as a result of our first birth, we were defiled, right? That's the deal with the perishable and imperishable seed here in verse 23. Our first birth was in the world and of the world. We were born with the guilt and stain of original sin. We were born already pre-programmed to live according to the world's standard and the world's ways rather than the kingdom's standard and kingdom ways. And so, when it comes to love, remember that's the the thing that we're dealing with here. When it comes to love, the world's way says what? That love of self reigns supreme. It's all about self interest, self preservation, love for others. Especially if it's a sincere, earnest, sacrificial love for others. Well, that's alien and foreign. It's even disdainful. Why would you want to do a thing like that? And so when we are born again, not of that perishable worldly seed... When we're born again, there's a cleansing. There's a a purification that takes place. We're the sinful ways of the world. Would that they were done away with entirely. But they are at least neutralized. They're stripped of their power. They no longer have a claim on us like they used to. We're no longer enslaved to them So those old ways are neutralized and we're given new ways, kingdom ways in their place. We're actually given love for our brothers and sisters. Do you see that in verse 22? Souls are purified for a sincere brotherly love. Love of self, self self-interest, self-preservation in the new birth. All those things, the power is stripped from them. The chains that they used to have around our heart and mind are broken. And they are replaced with love for others. And so you see this logic of Peter here in verse 22. With this argument of, this is true, now you need to live like it's true. Right? You've been purified. You've been given love. Now, for God's sake, use it. <laughs> You've been purified for brotherly love. So love. This is the same indicative, imperative thing that we see all the time. Right? Here's what's true. Now here's how you live as if it's true. All right, so we've got the mark of Christian maturity, which is love. A high mark, a difficult, an impossible mark. And we've got the motivation, the driving energy behind it that should propel us forward to that mark. You've been purified. You've been born again. You're a new person now. A new person who loves. Go live like it. But we would still very much benefit, on a practical level, of seeing how this works. What are, what are the mechanics of this? Where does the rubber meet the road with this loving like we're supposed to? What is the means by which it will actually happen? Because so far this has almost been theoretical, right? It should happen, it will happen, we're promised it will happen, but how? What is the link that holds all these things together? our command to love, the reality that we've been purified, the reality that we've been born again. What is the common denominator with all of those things that we see in these verses? It's God's Word. Just look at those first two verses again. See how the Word is the glue that holds all this together. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. The Word is the glue that holds all this together. Now, what does that look like? Well, the first thing we probably should do is seek to understand the role of God's Word in all this, we need to work through the awkwardness of this little phrase in verse 22. Obedience to the truth. That's, that's not how we normally think or speak about obedience. Right? We normally think of obeying laws or obeying commands. But this is obeying the truth. What's that look like? Well, what truth is it? What is the truth that Peter's talking about? Now, we could probably safely guess just from the other things that he's talking about in these verses that it's synonymous with those things. Well, it must be synonymous with the Word of God in verse 23. It must be synonymous with the good news that was preached to you in verse 25. I'm convinced it is, but lest there be any doubt, the rest of God's Word fully confirms what it is the very first thing that popped into my mind as I was thinking about obedience to the truth and what must the truth be was when Jesus was praying for his disciples, recorded in John 17, that great high priestly prayer. He's praying for his disciples. He says, Father, sanctify them with the truth. And what's he say next? He says, your word is truth sanctify them with the truth, your word is truth. So Jesus makes that connection for us. Paul does too. Paul actually helps us with both parts of this, what the truth is and also what it means to obey the truth. Uh, Ephesians 1, right? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's what the truth is. It's the gospel. Uh, Galatians 5. He begins Galatians 5 talking about the gospel. Talking about all the things that are, that are true for us. All of these indicative things. And then he says in verse 6, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who's keeping you from obeying all this stuff that's true in the gospel? All right, so the truth, the truth is God's word. It's the gospel of your salvation. That's what we see in verse 25 down there in our passage. The word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, if that's the case, I'm convinced that it is, then what does obeying truth look like? Well, Paul helps us again. Romans 10, those those great verses in Romans 10 about our great need to preach the good news, right? And he quotes Isaiah, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And then what does he say after that? But there's a problem, Romans 10 16. We've preached it, but they've not all obeyed the gospel. Well, how do you go about obeying the gospel? Is the gospel a command? No. The gospel's good news. You don't obey news. You respond to it. The gospel calls for a response. So to obey the gospel, to obey the truth as we see here, means that you respond appropriately to it. Well, what is the appropriate response to the gospel? Jesus told us, very beginning of his ministry, Mark 1:15, "The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news," he said. That's how we obey the truth. That's how we obey the gospel. We respond appropriately to it we repent and we believe. We repent. We say, you know what? This is true. I've got a dirty, defiled heart and soul. I've got a problem. I've got a wicked way of life and I want to turn from it. That's repentance. What about faith? What about belief? Jesus, I believe you solved this problem. I believe you lived righteously the life that I should have lived. I believe that you died sacrificially as my substitute, the death that I deserved to die. You took the punishment for my sins. That's how you obey the truth. And when you do, your soul is purified, verse 22 says. Well, that's really great. All we need to do is respond appropriately to the gospel, and we get a purified soul. There's just one problem with that. This obedience. Dead people aren't very good at it. Dead people aren't good at any type of obedience other than, hey, would you stay dead? Because they can do that all day long. And so this gets us back to the new birth, the other place where we see God's Word coming in and holding all this together. It's the means through which we are cured of our deadness. Verse 23. Since you have been born again, through, by the agency of, by means of the living and abiding Word of God. The new birth happens. The Holy Spirit brings about new life in us through the means of God's Word. Ordinarily, the Spirit causes the new birth as someone is hearing or reading the Word. It does not ordinarily happen in a vacuum. Just poof, huh. I've got this strange feeling all of a sudden. It's it's not that. It's, It's not goosebumps. It's not magic juju. The very first evidence of the new birth is that all of a sudden you believe in God's word what you previously disbelieved. And you can't explain why. Before the new birth, you heard God's Word, or you read God's Word, and it was just blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But then the Holy Spirit comes and makes you alive. God causes you to be born again, verse 3. And you hear it as if for the very first time. Right, You hear people's testimonies and they say, well, I grew up in the church, but the gospel must have never been preached. Maybe I was going to a bad church. And then one day, all of a sudden, they started preaching the gospel for the first time. Well, maybe, maybe you were in a bad church. Or maybe the gospel was preached a thousand times and you were still dead. But when the Spirit comes, you say, oh my gosh. (laughs) Why haven't I seen this before? It's so beautiful. This is wonderful news. And you believe. You respond in faith. You obey the truth. Now, what we most need at this point is to tie all this together and bring it back around to our command to love one another earnestly. A command that we're not naturally any good at. All right, so how does this work? Let's put all the pieces together. How will we have any hope of actually learning to love or growing in our love for our brothers and sisters? The key is is this imperishable seed of God's word planted in us at the new birth. See, we don't just benefit from God's word for a season. Um, It's not that God's word gets us started with the new birth, gives us this initial purification, all right, off you go. Go figure it out for yourself. that's, That's not how this works. The word is how the spirit gives us new life. And then this word lives, verse 23. It abides. It stays with us. His word, the power of the gospel, remains, verse 25. That purification in verse 22. Where the old sinful ways of the world that were, were natural to us, they're neutralized and new ways are given to us. Do you know that that is exactly what the prophets prophesied that the new birth would do? Jeremiah 31, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the new ways I was talking about. Old ways are neutralized. New kingdom ways. Godly ways. They're infused in us. They're given to us. They're injected deep down. Ezekiel 36, 26. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The word doesn't just get us started and then it's up to us. We get the word planted deeply like that imperishable seed that it is. It's planted deeply within us and it goes to work seed breaks open. And there's growth. There's change. The word that the Spirit used to give us life is the same word, the same truth, the same good news of the Gospel that is living and abiding in us and changing and transforming us, causing us, in fact, to love one another. Causing us to love each other earnestly, deeply, Sacrificially. Let's pray. Father, what a gift of your